you know, for non-Canadians, I think the perception of Canada is that it is a, you know, uninhabited wilderness. And I think that's actually true. When you think I'm building my home thing, then you, you ask yourself a lot of questions about uh, why we were making games at Binox in English and with American culture. Welcome to Built to Play, games and media for the technology inclined. I'm Armanik Bali. And I'm Daniel Rosen. This week, Microsoft has two billion reasons to like Minecraft. Also, the Xbox isn't very big in Japan, the FBI responds to Gamergate, and ESPN doesn't like chess very much. Plus, we talk about Canada and why so few games actually feel Canadian. But first, Daniel visited Xbox Canada to see the new Assassin's Creed, Fable Legends, and The Evil Within. X14 is the name of the event, yes. and it was on September 10th where you played a couple games. Yeah, so um, let's start with Assassin's Creed Unity. I spoke to uh, Nitai Bassett. I'm a level design director at Ubisoft Toronto. So what are we seeing here right now? So um, Arno kind of goes to a vantage point, and he surveys the area, and he looks for different gameplay opportunities. So uh, he's, here he's going to spot this guy having a conversation um, he, he's going to actually be meeting our target inside Notre Dame, so we, we know that. And then these guys stole a key, so we know that. So these, these are going to inform what we call mod missions. They're optional objectives that you can complete or not, it's up to the player. But if you do them, it'll give you some advantage, and uh, it'll make the assassination easier or different or more interesting in some way. Uh, what did you think of uh, Assassin's Creed Unity from what you saw? I am a cantankerous Assassin's Creed person where I try to play them and I always don't like them because I want them to be stealth games and they're very much action games kind of through and through. And the big thing that was like a huge deal to me that I saw was the game actually has a crouch button now. This will break line of sight. I will move faster, um, be quieter. So when you're stalking someone or infiltrating, it's, it's really good to have this ability. So it, it definitely feels like they're finally giving the people who are going into this with sort of stealth in mind. You can peek around cover, you can shoot from cover, to cover to cover transitions. So the whole like stealth portion of the game is all being completely redone. A lot of us, every Assassin's Creed game always has like sneak up on the guy where you will fail at five seconds in and then immediately have to start killing everybody around. So that was that was really cool. The thing that wasn't super cool was the game is still sort of as gory and unsettlingly gory as it was at E3. Like in our E3 demo, which we made in Toronto, it ends with the crowd like decapitating someone, putting his head on a pike and lifting it up into the air. That, that happened all the time. It's, uh, it's the, one of the most brutal periods in human history is the uh, French Revolution. Living in Paris at this point would have been absolutely horrible. But uh, for a video game, it's, uh, it's kind of fun. It's so cartoony as to be ridiculous, but not so much that it isn't kind of uncomfortable. Is there at least any sense of, like, that this game is going to focus on actual assassinations as opposed to, like, killing everyone in someone's home? And... Yeah, that's the thing. These The mission you showed me was a mission where you were going through Notre Dame Cathedral and you had one target. Why is there a bale of hay in the cathedral? Because during the French Revolution, uh, Notre Dame was taken over by the revolutionaries and they used it for storage. They stored, like, munitions and supplies there. Uh, but they still allowed mass, so they opened the doors and let people have mass. And at the beginning of the mission, you kind of get a sense like, okay, so this guy has keys here, which will get me into the cathedral without having to go through the front. And this guy over here is going has information for me about him. So, I'm, so he went and assassinated the got the information, assassinated a separate target who was supposed to meet with his main target. 
stole a pair, a set of keys, broke into it, learned from that first guy assassinated that he was going to meet him in the confessional, snuck into the confessional booth, kills the guy in the confessional booth, makes it out without being seen. Like, the whole time he makes it without being seen, and then he showed me what it's like to get, you know, get an alarm going on just so I got an idea of it. It is entirely possible to actually do a proper assassination on a key target without having to get into a giant extended, you know, firefight. I feel like we haven't actually seen that since the first Assassin's Creed Exactly, like, it's definitely a return to that. Assassin's Creed 2 sort of opened up, like, hey, big open-world action game. And Assassin's Creed 4 was literally like, all right, I'm cruising around, sailing for people to shoot in the face. Uh, but this sort of is definitely feels like it is actually options for the uh, for the stealth inclined uh, players, and that's very exciting to me um, as a person who really likes stealth games. Cover is n- cover and ducking is not exactly innovative, but it's nice to see it. Uh, you then you had to go with the evil within and talk to someone at Bethesda PR. Yes, I spoke to Grandstaff. Uh, I'm the global community lead at Bethesda Softworks. So what did that look like? What is the uh, what is the evil within for people who haven't taken a look at that? The evil within is uh, as as uh, Grandstaff mentioned is the is Shinji Mikami's new game. Shinji Mikami being the director of Resident Evil Four and Vanquish, uh, and this is sort of his return to survival horror. Uh, in sort of an era where Resident Evil particularly has sort of become very much an action game, and survival horrors came to me come to mean sort of very specific sort of indie games with stuff like Amnesia and Descent, very very kind of scary, slow, low weaponry games. This is very much Resident Evil 4 too. You're definitely going to find yourself in situations where um, you're now deciding. I know my shotgun is this powerful. I almost want to save that for when three guys are huddled together so I knock down all three with one shot versus I have nine bullets on my pistol, but I know I'm going to waste about four of them just taking down one guy. And it's a little bit disappointing in that regard. The game is very impressive to see when somebody is guiding you through it who knows all the beats and can show you the cool stuff. So see, he's still up, and even though he was getting up, once he's down... That gives me, like, you get to a point where you're like, yes, I can run over hit to him and, and use a match and set him on fire. Because uh, if that animation is set where you can do it, you're going to eliminate him immediately and, and not have to waste any ammo. But when you are going through it, there's a lot of cheap deaths. There's a lot of jump scares. Uh, the atmospheric stuff is great and the sound design is great. Mostly subtle music cues and, and sound cues of, uh, I, I think you saw when Ruva came, you hear an indication... Uh, that he's chasing you, and that music that's playing there, the kind of eerie, piercing music, is letting you know he's still but, around. Uh, literally at one point, I was walking down a hallway when I triggered a, you know, QTE, right, to shoot out this trap. I failed to shoot at this trap because it was not clear at all that I had to shoot the blinking light above it, and then I lose 20 minutes of progress. And so now when I'm trudging my way through the 20 minutes, nothing is scary anymore because I know the beats. Right, right. Um, there's actually been some mixed press on this game. Um, what, uh, what, what was your impression coming out of it? My impression was that I saw a really small portion of the game, but if the checkpoint system is sort of how it is as it is now, this game will be very spooky that first time until I die and then stop being spooky. It's really hard. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've I, I found even in uh, the, the easiest level, I still think it's a pretty difficult game there. Um, so we want to make sure that, that for players today, it's, it has the expectations of, of a modern game. 
Now, a game that's had a lot better press around it is Alien Isolation, which is another game from the Alien series. Um, did that game scare you at all? That game freaked me the hell out in a crowded room full of people with people like looking over my shoulder. That game had me like my knees were shaking at certain points. So this is nothing to do with the... There was another game with aliens that, that we've been that talking about. That was Aliens Colonial Marines from 2013. That game was a disaster. Okay, uh, and this fact, is not that. This is not that. has nothing to do with it. Developed by totally different people. Uh, Sega's taking very clear that people know that there's a difference here and kind of are trying to control a lot of the video and sound of that game just so people don't think it is Colonial Marines at all. That This game, unlike that game, is spectacular. The kind of big hook for it is that it is an alien game, not an aliens game. Meaning, the first movie, which was much more of a horror film, uh, you are being chased by only one alien. It is one alien throughout the entire game. You don't have any weapons. There was a flamethrower in the demo I played, which the uh, PR guy from Sega was very clear to tell me was a tool, not a weapon. This is not going to hurt the alien anyway. It might scare it off for a second, but... The Xenomorph, the alien in question, is totally unscripted. It is reacting in real time to what you do, how you do it, sounds and lights. It sort of does what it wants. So again, even unlike Evil Within, dying doesn't put you back in the same scripted mess. Dying actually resets the alien's reactions, and you can't, you can't doing the, you can do the same thing twice and get totally different, you know, outcomes. So it was really, really cool and really scary because he was reacting in real time. The only tool I really had that was available to me properly was the motion tracker, which allowed me to see where the alien was, like, to the left, behind, right, and where it was sort of in front of me. And that combined with the sound of the alien moving through the vents, which was all kind of taken directly from the film, and sneaking up behind me was, like, genuinely unsettling and really spooky. The other really cool thing about this game is the way it looks. Uh, they took a really, the, the team apparently took a really great care to kind of preserve the feel of the 70s movie. So everything looks sort of like a 70s kind of video. And uh, at one point, the game kind of, the demo opened up with a kind of tutorial on how to use the motion tracker, sort of a 30-second video that looked like those crappy VHSs we saw in elementary school, which, uh, the according to the uh, PR up, the dev team actually tried to figure out how to get that lo-fi sci-fi look. And what they did was they recorded that video onto a VHS, scratched up the tape, and put it back into the game. And it looks spectacular. The the motion tracker itself has that, like, curly Q phone cord attaching itself to your belt and the carabiner on top. And it looks like a prop from a 1970s, you know, a late mid-70s movie. It's really cool. So, on top of this, we you've been mentioning a lot of stuff about gore, but I don't think anything is much more gory than Mortal Kombat. Uh, you play a lot of fighting games, but I don't think Mortal Kombat is quite your thing. Not really, but I do have a soft spot for the modern Mortal Kombat games, Mortal Kombat 9 from 2011 and now Mortal Kombat 10. They're sort of a refreshing goriness, because they don't take themselves seriously at all. Assassin's Creed wants to present that gore as something like, this is dramatic and surprising. The gore in Mortal Kombat is a punchline. I was playing one of the new characters, Cassie Cage, who is the daughter of series mainstays Johnny Cage and Sonya Blade. Her, one of her moves, one of her standard in-game moves, is to punch the opponent in the ball so hard their genitals explode. That's amazing. Her fatality is to kneecap the opponent, shoot them in the skull, chew a piece of gum, put it on that bullet hole in their forehead, and watch as the blood-soaked bubble pops. And it's just, it's a wink and a nod. Like, it's really just funny. At one point, one of the new gameplay elements is taken from uh, Injustice, the DC fighting game that Mortal Kombat team worked on before this, where you can interact with the environment. And in the um, in the uh, what's it called in the in the in the market stage, a my uh, my opponent picked up an old lady in the middle of her shopping and tossed her into my face. <laughs> like the tone of Mortal Kombat is something beautiful, and we're sort of missing that from these sort of gory, bloody games. Just sort of a goofy wink and a nudge. The other gameplay element is that every character has three variations on them now. So, for example, uh, 
um, Scorpion, kind of a series mainstay, has a move, has a variation that focuses on his fire attacks, and he has a variation that gives him ninja swords, and he has a variation that gives that focuses on his sort of grabbing range attacks. So you kind of have this character, sort of a specialization on what you want to focus on. And I think you got in touch with two people on Fable Legends. Now, I know you're a massive Fable fan, Daniel. Oh, yeah, I've played every Fable game. I don't know why I did that. I can only assume Peter Molyneux's honeyed words uh, suckered me in. Anyway, I interviewed David Eckleberry. I'm the game director of Fable Legends. And Lewis Brundish, and I specifically designed the villain. So this is a straight, this is like an arena-based uh, four-person co-op action game. Five-person, actually, but the fifth person is not cooperating. The fifth person is playing as the villain villain who is sort of controlling enemy placement and enemy AI and traps around the arena. So the villain gets to control uh, the creatures, choose who they're going to attack, where they're going to attack. Well, even deeper than that, actually, the villain chooses which creatures are going to appear in the quest, which traps are going to appear in the quest, then he chooses where to position them. Then as the heroes arrive and the quest starts, the villain gets to control where those creatures go, who they attack, their special attacks, the freaking gates, all the moving parts, everything that you see happening, basically, there's this overlord watching it. When we saw it at E3, it was seemed kind of one of those things like too good to be true. It was moving too fluidly and it seemed kind of generic. Uh, when I got my hands on it, it actually feels it feels kind of a little bit MOBA inspired in the hero placement. In terms of actual gameplay, though, it's straight up action RPG. You're leveling your characters, you're taking them through a campaign. What what we're showing off today is a demo that is one half of Quest 11 of the overall campaign arc. I see. And you can choose to play that campaign arc multiplayer as you just did. Um, you wouldn't start normally in Quest 11, of course. Um, or you could play it single player, where all the other three or four roles could be filled in by AI. Uh, the villain levels up as well and gains access to more and more enemies, which he can then use to do all kinds of cool stuff. That at one point, my character, who was a tank, I was lured away by a kind of a wayward enemy who dragged me beyond a gate, which the villain then pulled up the gate and dropped five or six enemies on top of me, which forced me to, I as a tank am kind of slow and don't do a ton of damage. But now my party, who sort of kind of, they were kind of a built a magic and uh, archery party, so they didn't have a lot of attacking options or defending options. And us being separated now sort of screwed both of us over. Meanwhile, the villain who's sitting, you know, three feet away from us is just cackling his damn head off. It's important for high-level play, right? If you just jump into the game, um, you don't need to be familiar with the heroes. At the end of the day, the heroes are all going to get hurt when you attack them, right? So you, uh, at a low level, you can be more opportunistic. And um, when a hero walks into a particular area, you can just go, right, I'm going to shut them in there. I'm going to drop an artillery on them. Obviously, as you get more high level and you start to play against more and more experienced and nuanced players, then you're going to want to start targeting individuals. And so in the bottom left there, as you can see the hero health loadouts, let's say that Shroud there, he's a sniper. I know he's going to be at the back. I know I'm going to need to get rid of him. If I tap the corresponding direction on my D-pad, I'm just going to snap the camera to him and I can go, right, kill him. Uh, bluntly, it's the nightmare of my life, right? I mean, like, it's the biggest design challenge we've ever accepted for on a personal level from all, all the games that I've worked on. It will be the most difficult balancing operation ever. Uh, and we've taken that on because it's a really interesting thing to do, right? Every hero is unique and has unique three special abilities. There are different amounts of armor and damage they do and all that. Every villain is different, right? He has different creatures he can use. And all of them have their unique special abilities. Balancing all of this, moving parts at the same time, is going to be all, almost Herculean, Sisyphean task, right? Oh, that's so. I mean, like it's it's another kind of asymmetrical gameplay type uh, right. type games. The the problems I kind of foresee for it is that online it may not be nearly as smooth. We were playing on five different uh, networked Xbox Ones, 
And there's, I don't know, necessarily know if the game has couch co-op. Um, uh, I talked to Eckleberry, says they are currently kind of thinking about what they can do with smart glass and stuff like that. Uh, but the this game works best if it is as smooth as it was when I played it. And it remain, there, there's, there remains to be seen how that will work out. So it's kind of like Dungeons & Dragons is what you're saying. It's, it reminds me a lot. You know what? That's actually the best way of putting it. It definitely feels like Dungeons & Dragons, minus the uh, role-playing element, but definitely the action of it. You're related to things like Dungeon Keeper or even Dungeons & Dragons if you're really old like me, but they have to see it, right? They have to play it. Right. And then after a while, you can start to feel that gate going up and down, that artillery strike that just yeah. happened. That was a human that did that. Now that's more or less I think everything you've checked out. Any final thoughts? You could Assassin's Creed. Has, you can get 15 francs and buy a croissant, which is, I, I believe, you know, I think that is the most important thing in gaming. Sorry. Speaking of Microsoft, looks like they are going to abor- absorb gaming's Lego into its amorphous being. Uh, so rumors say that Microsoft is trying to buy Mojang for $2 billion. Um, they make the teeth-shattering popular virtual Lego game Minecraft. Uh, according to Bloomberg, founder Marcus Person feels he and Microsoft have had a positive working relationship. Their sources say that Xbox head Phil Spencer has been flying out to woo Person in uh, person. It's decision to. It's a decision in, that makes sense in a certain light, um, in the sense that Minecraft is a licensing juggernaut with toys, clothes, books, accessories, games, and even a movie in the works. Microsoft isn't necessarily buying the company that makes Minecraft so much as they're buying the brand that is Minecraft. Presumably, as part of the deal, person will remain some level of royalties or licensing rights, so he can keep sitting on a giant sack of money and make whatever the hell games he wants to. Uh, I, I believe he is working on scrolls still. Which is that card game? Yeah, um, he'll presume he will. Uh, according to this role, he will be leaving the company after a transitional period. Um, last time Microsoft made a big uh, game studio purchase, it was Rare in 2002, which they bought from Nintendo. Uh, Rare has sort of gone down the gutter in recent years, but at the time of purchase, it seemed like a pretty savvy acquisition. I mean, um, that was running off of a really sweet lineup of uh, N64 platformers. That was they were basically rolling off of the company that made the N64 what it was. Yeah, like that was the, that was rolling off of the banks of Goldeneye, Banjo Kazooie. Um, Perfect Dark. Uh, uh, did they do Conkers? They did do Conker. Now Conker is not. Here's the thing. I don't think Rare ever. I don't believe Rare has ever made one good game, except for <laughs> Banjo Kazooie Nuts and Bolts. But I'm the only person who thinks that's a good game. But it's undeniable that they had their finger on the pulse and they were super smart. Like they knew what people wanted. Uh, unfortunately, that after the Microsoft acquisition, they seem to have lost that pulse, which unfortunately may kind of turn out what happened to Mojang. But then again, I don't really know what they would want Mojang to do other than Minecraft. Um, Microsoft doesn't really have too many first-party franchises that are positively associated with them, nor do they have anything that young people, but young being, like, below the age of 10 or -hmm. below the age of 15, that uh, they think is cool. I mean, they have stuff like... Gears of War and Halo, but that's a much more older crowd. And, and much... to be fair, those kind of both those franchises, Halo specifically, has sort of seen a downtick in recent years. And Gears of War was po- purchased from was a franchise purchased from Epic, so they haven't had a lot of influence up until this point. Right. Um, my best case is that they leave Minecraft alone and allow Mojang to keep updating it as long as they keep raking in cash. I don't think they're going to turn it. In. They're not. It's not. They're not going to do what they did to Rare and turn it to the Avatar and Connect Studio. I mean, then they uh, Rare's last game was something like Connect Sports. Connect Sports Rivals Two. Yeah. 
So, uh, that, so basically, it's a hollowed out shell of what it previously was. Oh, 100%. I, d- I don't think they need to even bother with Mojang. Mojang is just making so much money from what it's just leaving it alone would be the right. smartest decision in the world. Though the thing I have to wonder, Mo- Mojang's a fairly small studio. If person leaves, does everybody else leave with him? I I don't know. I mean, like, they, he's been, they've been moving off. They, they have another guy in charge of uh, Minecraft, and he's been doing the bulk of the work for a while. He's been moving the games to, the, moving the game to other platforms. Um, he helped bring it to PS3 most recently. Um, it would be a bit of a steal for, uh, it would be a bit of a steal for, My- for Minecraft to suddenly be a, Xbox game or a game that only appears on Windows and Xbox and gets updated but, and, primarily and the on thing, those platforms. That's the thing. Like, it's, it came out on PS4 last week. Yeah. They can, can, I don't think they can take it away all of a sudden, but they definitely can't update it anymore. Yeah, I think that would be the condition. It's like, yeah, okay, you get the, this game with as many features as possible, but we're never updating it for those platforms again. Right. I have, and, I mean, also, to be fair, like the Android and iOS versions, which are very popular, there's not, there is no Windows Phone version of Minecraft, as far as I understand. Yeah, I mean, there's some rip-off versions, but sure. I don't think there's nothing official. Well, there's a, some rip-off versions for everything under the sun. I can play rip-off of Minecraft on my sneakers. Anyway, $2 billion seems like both a high and low price. On one hand, they're just buying Minecraft, but on the other hand, Minecraft has the potential to be enormous. Minecraft is enormous. Like, I, I believe it was, it's, if you look at like a Walmart or a Target, they have a Minecraft branded product in almost every section. Yeah, it's, they have t-shirts, they have, uh, what was it, accessories, like toys. Um, you can go to a comic book store and find it. You can go to a Target and find it. It's, it's everywhere. Like it's, Minecraft is what Pokemon was in the 90s. Yeah. In terms of like consumer outreach and appeal. It hit really hard. Which is amazing for something that's basically just a rip-off of a Douglas Copeland novel. <laughs> Microsoft is just like on the tip of our tongues this week. Twixon Tokyo! Um, about a year after its North American release, no one bought the Xbox One in Japan. Oops. Uh, the Xbox One sold 23,562 units in its first week on the market, which is actually less than half of the number of Xbox 360s sold that week. Oh, that's intense. Uh, the numbers make it the worst console launch in Japan in recent years. For comparison, the Wii U sold 308,000, the PS4 sold 322,000, and the 360 did 62,000 in three days. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. It's it's kind of like... I mean, those, And you got to understand that the Wii U and PS4, they were considered bad launches. Like, these aren't great launches for Japan. Japan is like a relatively small uh, population compared but to the United States. But usually at launch, you'll get, you're hitting half a million, something yeah. like that, 600,000, you know, at, at your high end. 23,000. Oh, that's just dark. The top-selling Xbox One game that wasn't bundled with the system, so which is a Titanfall or Kinect Sports, was Dead Rising 3, which sold just over 7,000 units. Uh, Dead Rising 3, which at one point in its history was a Capcom game and uh, is now being made by Canadians. So, <laughs> I don't know. I, Japan. So, Japan, take those zombie games. Um, the console launch lineups were also pretty sad with an astonishing number of zero people who turned out to wait in line. Uh, Microsoft has never done well in Japan, but the 360, they actually tried? They had a lot of, like, they had Blue Dragon, which was not a yeah, bad they, game. Yeah, they, like, had Mistwalker make RPGs for them, and they, they had launch events and parties and tried to get on TV and stuff. Um, what was, there was Lost Odyssey, which was a really good RPG that came out. Yeah, yeah, uh, they, they had Japan-focused games. They tried with the 360. They did not give, a, like, half a crap about Japan this time. No, it's... It feels like Microsoft has basically abandoned every market except North America, and only recently has the TV function started working in Canada. So, really, they just care about people who watch football. Right. We kind of talked about this last year when they announced the system, but it's nice to see that we were right. <laughs> uh, we're going to play a little song. Um, do, 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 do. 
USA. 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 No, actually, Japan. But I mean, like, I think this is symptomatic of all the consoles in a sense that, like, if you saw Sony's Tokyo Game Show pre-press conference that they had, most of those games, except for, like, Persona 5, were... Um, were Western games. Like, yeah. stuff made in the United States or made internationally and mostly for a Western audience. There's even Sony's not really digging but into Japan Japanese. But Japan still has stuff like, they're still, you know, Sony's still trying to work on stuff like the Yakuza series. They're still letting the Japan studio make games. Right. They still have teams in Japan working on things directly for the Japanese market. I open up the Japanese PSN store on my PS3 and it's nothing but anime stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's Moe out the wazoo. There's a lot Sorry, of... Sorry, the wazoo-chan. <laughs> And that's where we're just going to end it. Um, the, uh, but yeah, I mean, hopefully the uh, Microsoft gets a turnaround. It's always good. To, I mean, the thing is, it's always good to have competition no matter what the market is. And yep. with the Wii U not doing super great, I mean, it'd be nice if Where Japan... the PS4 is conquering, you know, left and right. Well, the 3DS too, but yeah, that's it, a different market. It'd be nice to, to see some kind of competition going on there as Microsoft intended. Uh, just hope that they, don't, they haven't completely thrown the baby out of the bathwater. Um, and... Speaking of throwing out the baby to the bathwater, uh, let's talk about ESPN. Yeah, uh, so ESPN John, president John Skipper was at the Code Media Conference uh, in New York, giving a talk on giving a talk when he was asked to comment on Twitch's recent acquisition by Amazon. Specifically, he was asked about the viability of esports. Uh, so he said specifically, uh, he said it's not a sport; it's a competition. Chess is a competition. Checkers is a competition. So there you have it. According to the boss of ESPN, esports don't count. Um, in July, ESPN3 gave it a shot with, teaming up with Valve um, for the International 2014 or the International 4 of uh, the annual Dota 2 tournament. Mind you, ESPN3 is a streaming service, not a TV network, but ESPN does have its eye on the competitive gaming scene. They've actually also broadcast poker tournaments in the past and have totally abandoned the NHL. <laughs> so their stances are kind of focused on where the money is and not what is a real sport and what isn't. <laughs> but still, that says a lot. I mean, people who play like a lot of a, a lot of chess would disagree with you. I think they they think that chess is probably a sport. That to requires them, a lot. Of... I, listen, I'm a person who likes esports as an idea, but I really agree with this guy. Oh, okay. I genuinely think he's not wrong. Like, if we're going to define what sports are as a physically strenuous like activity between these teams of athletes, I think that's fine to justify these. Like, chess is still a perfectly honorable thing. It's not a sport. It's this competition. It's, a, you know, it, it's still honorable in its own right. Esports, we call them esports, but they are not, e, you know, they're not sports as they are commonly considered. I, I don't think that's unfair, and I don't think that's detrimental to their to them or their advancement. But, like, people who play these games break their hands, man. There's some, there's yeah. some serious controversy going on here. I mean, like, there's people just completely fry their nerve endings playing uh, StarCraft. Sure, and, and I definitely think that that's part of it, but I also, I, I think it would be, I, I think in terms of, like, getting people to accept esports, it, here's the thing, if your goal is getting esports to be accepted as a mainstream popular thing, your first thing is to explain to people, is, is to deal with people who go, well, that's not a sport, right. and you say, yes, it's a competition between these, between you know, essentially digital athletes. Right. And these athletes are still doing these po- these these actions. They're just not sportsmen, as it were. Uh, okay. Um, I, I think it's like if that's your big hurdle is to get it accepted, I definitely think that finding a way to deal with that sports dichotomy is a big step. And this guy essentially just served it to you on a platter. The, um, I mean, when it, it's... I don't think that ESPN is going to be broadcasting full Dota matches or league league matches anytime soon oh, no, outside no, no. of these tournaments. Um, I mean, they 
if they've abandoned the NHL, I don't think the greatest thing to replace they it simply is... abandoned the NHL due to like money things. Yeah, so it's 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 all all it is just like what where where's the money at? Yeah. You know, it's the licensing deals. That's all they care about. I, I think it's going to take a while, even until like just because esports right now are so. Uh, I mean, like with sports, at the very least, you can count on the people in re- in the regions in which the sports teams are based um, to be tuning in because they have some kind of local pride. If you're in Pennsylvania, you probably have a um, big expanse for the local teams. But, um, but the uh, if you, like with esports, the, these guys come from all over. There's multinational teams. There's yeah. teams that have. Um, there's no there's no real reason for a casual fan to tune into a random esports match. Right, and I, I definitely think that sort of screws it over for television broadcasting. There's no, there's there's no. It's only event viewing and nothing else. It's like the super, like every match is a Super Bowl. All right, so moving on to our next topic, um, I'm just going to read the headline you wrote for this. Uh, Seriously, what moron passed it up calling it Mengazi? So why did you commit this war crime, Daniel? Um, So (laughs) as of last week, the FBI is working with the International Game Developers Association to deal with the increase in harassment against game developers in recent months. Last week, you might remember, we talked a lot about what uh, some people are calling Gamergate. And uh, what I saw on Twitter last night, somebody referred to it as Mengazi, and I'm 100% behind that. (laughs) Um, So IGA... uh, uh, IG, the IDGA, IDGA yeah. executive director Kate Edwards says that she was approached by the Federal Bureau of Investigation in July while at Comic-Con. Uh, the FBI has noted a rise in harassment and cyberbullying in the games community. This was in July, so this was before sort of uh, the Gamergate campaign of harassment against women in the industry started, but it's been going on for a while. And that, the, the, the FBI monitors a lot of... Uh, harassment um they but they really only look for like cyber crime stuff with like fraud bitcoins um they tore uh they recently and particularly malicious harassment um the fbi says it was a proactive meeting that they wanted the idga uh to know the fbi's capabilities in that area uh other than harassment of various women in the industry over the last few weeks the games community has seen a wide rise in swatting and what's what's swatting swatting is when so we are playing let us say uh call of duty against each other and you uh, beat me at Call of Duty, and so you are live streaming your matches, and I look up your IP address using, you know, using this stream, and then I call in that somebody at your address is, um, you know, has a bomb or is holding somebody at hostage at gunpoint, and a SWAT team breaks in and uh, injure and injures your family trying to get in there to get to the person because they knock down a door and throw people aside because they don't know what's happening. And then uh, you, as the person who gets called it, call, call, get, you know, called it in, gets arrested. So I, this is not just a United States thing when it comes to swatting. I mean, uh, uh, recently a, a kid in Ottawa got uh, 60 charges against him for swatting. Um, police showed up to his house. Not Nothing close to the national level of the uh, the FBI. But it, it's a concern that's happening world, well, at least North American wide. Yeah, I, th- I believe in the, in the United States, um, one kid who was 15 years old was charged an adult. Because the result of his action caused the um, the you know the uh, the other player's father to be hospitalized because he was slammed aside by one of the SWAT team people breaking into the house. There's also there um, there's been p- incidents of people having like being falsely broken into and then like maybe having a bit of weed lying around, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, stuff that you probably shouldn't having in a place that everyone can see it, but immediately getting arrested because of that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, there's also the uh, Twitter bomb threat that forced the um, John Smedley, Sony Online Entertainment's president. Uh, there was a bomb threat call, uh, called in through Twitter that uh, forced his plane to be diverted. <laughs> so, you know, gamers are great, I guess. 
Um, they're in the the IDGA says they're in the process of creating a mental health special interest group that would focus on harassment in the industry. Uh, the FBI is primarily concerned with the security of companies, IPs, and developers, which have fa- been fairly compromised in the recent weeks. Zoe Quinn, Phil Fish, Anita Sarkeesian were all doxxed really hard and in really terrible ways, as we discussed last week. And knowing the FBI is interested has to be worth something for them, I suppose. It's I, At the very least, it's some kind of comfort that there is some authority that's interested. And I know Quinn has actually gone to the FBI because she was actually stalking the, their uh, IRC feeds right. for weeks and dropped that nightmare bomb, which was incredible. Just stone cold. Yeah, yeah, no. The um, but when it comes to that stuff, I feel like games has also often been this wasteland, this this zone where nothing, where no rules seem to apply. Mostly because it's run by fifteen year olds, mm-hmm. and so the stakes seem to be super low. But now that it's like it's it's gone to the level of doxing, and people have had their personal information stolen, uh, it's it's I think it's fair that the FBI gets involved, and I'm surprised that the with the attacks on Phil Fish, the RCMP hasn't made a bigger stake in it yet. Yeah, um, I believe he did go and discuss, talk to them. Though. Yeah, 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 he so. did. Speaking of screaming, uh, in case you missed it, uh, the, <laughs> you missed the complete carpet bombing of ads over all of the screens, uh, Destiny is out. In fact, it's so out, Activision is claiming they have sold $325 million worth of it in the first five days. So, okay, let's just, let's just re- for those of you who haven't been just completely like bombed by the sheer number of ads about how this is the greatest game ever made, um, this is the... Always online shooter made by the original Halo developers, Bungie, that was in production right as uh, they were finishing up their last game in their series, Halo Reach, and is finally now available for people to put in their mouths. (laughs) Destiny. It also cost $500 million to make. Uh, wasn't wait? Well, hold on. Wasn't that bo- something Bobby Kotick said, and then someone went up and said, "Oh, it didn't quite cost that much." I think it's that the I think with advertising at the end of the day, I think it cost something like that. Okay, that because that was that was about Grand Theft Auto's price as well after advertising budgets. That makes sense. Okay, so this game uh, took a lot of money to make, and sheer number of numbers people played more than a hundred million hours in term in its first week, which is a crazy number, but apparently pretty normal for games like Call of Duty. Uh, critical reception hasn't been too hot, but Bungie and Activision have signed a 10-year contract, which means we're getting more of it whether we like it or not. Uh, this week, they launched the game's first raid, Vault of Glass. One has to wonder why the hell that wasn't available on day one, but, you know, logic. Uh, the vault took what was it? Took uh, 14 hours to finish, and they killed 5,000 enemies. I don't know what this game is, but luckily, our very own Armagabali, who has been playing Destiny until his eyes bleed and his fingers fall off, dry up, and become one with the post-apocalyptic waste, has been playing it. What is Destiny? Okay, so uh, let me let me give you uh, an impression of how how Destiny works. So you make a character, right? So you think it's it's like an MMO. I mean, like you 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 gotta conceive of it as the structure of MMO with the gameplay of a shooter. Except it's someone who saw the structure of an MMO and then said, okay, how can we turn this into the least rewarding Skinner box ever devised? Like, how can we take Diablo and make that look like, oh, I want to play that game. That looks like way more rewarding than any time I've spent in Destiny. Um, Destiny so Destiny is a game where you, take, you buy a gun and then uh, a robot who's played by Peter Dinklage. Um, I like to call him my Dinkle buddy. Alternatively, my Dinkle bot or uh, Dinkle droid. Um, I call him Dinky Pete. <laughs> you, he says, hey, look, there's a mission in, like, space somewhere. And you're like, okay. And then you go to that mission and you shoot a bunch of guys, usually more than you really probably should. And then there's some dumb dialogue 
where uh, he goes, Hey, there's a thing I need to scan here. That wizard came from the moon. I thought we had them contained there. Press the square button, and I say, okay, and then five waves of enemies come at you, and then sometimes there's a boss, and then you win, and then you go back, and there's like, oh, man, you killed that guy? That guy's so important for some reason. Here's reward. Stay alert up. Okay, let's talk. And then you're like, Oh, thanks, because all the vendors here are garbage and the money is worth nothing except for, like, this shader I bought which makes me fluorescent orange because I didn't know what my character... because there's no preview screen for my character. So now I just... I spent a thousand dollars on this cosmetic item. Anyway, don't play Destiny, guys. The, the raid, by the way, is completely different in terms of how the rest of the game works. There is a stealth section in that raid. What? The, the, there is a stealth section and a p- environmental puzzle section, which means that they fought of different... Like, this is nothing that happens in the rest of the game. So they came up with mission structures, mission sure. goals. Yeah. They came up with level designs. Yeah. And they said, eh, not at launch. Yeah, no. So then also the... <laughs> <laughs> I have just gotten very close to level 20. I'm like level 19 now. How and long have you been playing? I've been playing for, for close to 20 hours. Okay. I've played, I, I took one afternoon and said, oh, I'm going to play this. This is when it gets, I've heard it gets good at 20 hours. That's a lie. They are lying to you. This is not when it gets good. This is when it gets like dark and scary. <laughs> this is when like the monsters crawl out and you realize that you're a worse person than you ever thought you were. Um, What happens is at level 20, you that you you stop leveling. That's the max level supposedly. But then you start getting this light rating, and this light rating upgrades your level, kind of. So what happens? You need to get good loot, but you get and because the loot has light on it, and the light, if you have enough of it, means you gain a level or something. Anyway, so that means you need to get loot. Now there's no more story to play. The story ends at level twenty. So at you, least until the first expansion. At least until the first first expansion. So the story ends at level twenty and. The rest of the game is just you replaying the same mission, oh, same missions you played before. All of a sudden, all of these hard modes unlock that you haven't seen before for all these old missions. And you go in, you're supposed to replay, and then you get more loot. Except the loot's terrible, and it takes ages and ages to get more loot. Um, the funny thing is, on top of all this, is um, the fact that by replaying missions, I mean, that's guising the fact that you are always replaying missions. But the fact is that... Uh, the mission structure is so alike in 90% of the game that you might as well just be replacing... And it's like you're walking in the same environments also over and over again throughout these missions. So it's not like there's a great diversity of content to begin with. Um, yeah, don't buy... Like, again, don't buy Destiny. I am I am, st- I am, am playing this game so you don't have to, okay? But of course we'll be getting about uh, eight more of these before the decade's through. Yeah, so there's going to be one every two years and there's going to be two apparently about two expansions between each game. Um, the one coming up next, I think, is the House of Wolves and Deep Down or something. Isn't um, Deep Down that new Capcom game? Yeah, probably. I don't know. <laughs> Video games. I don't know what they are anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I quit. The show's about knitting now. The show's about knitting and wines. Oh, that's it for news. That's it for life.
Here at Built to Play, Canada's probably our favorite country. On a scale from 1 to 10 of places we like to be, it scores like a solid 9. And why wouldn't it be? We have universal healthcare, beautiful landscapes, and poutine. Very well. I hereby grant thee access to the great nation of Canada. Open the gate! Now that's not to say the country's perfect, but it has a lot of good things going for it, and I'm sure a lot of game developers would agree. See, Canada is the third largest hub for game development in the world, after Japan and the United States. French developer Ubisoft creates a lot of its games in Montreal, as does Square Enix and Warner Brothers. Plus, Electronic Arts and Microsoft have studios based on Vancouver. But these blockbuster games are strange, well, culturally, anyway. Let's take a look at Assassin's Creed 3. Ubisoft Montreal was the lead studio in that game, but I don't think you can say it's Canadian. It's a game about the American Revolution, made by Quebecers from a company headquartered in France. It's really particular. Like they make a Assassin's Creed game that takes place in like the United States, but the people who work on the game are from Montreal, are from Quebec, and are from Singapore. So, and even uh, all around the way, now they will be in Toronto, and maybe some part of the game will be made in Toronto, so when I play Ubisoft games, I really feel like it's, uh, it's a fragmented piece of uh, software. It's not... I don't feel uh, uh, like being in the United States. I think they, they do a lot of research to, to do that, and they hire uh, 600 people to try to achieve that, but I will prefer playing a game made in Texas, for example, uh, with 10 people, I think it will uh, communicate that better than uh, 600 developers that don't know a thing about uh, American history. That's Alexandre Fizet, a game producer on Quebec City. A couple years ago, he worked for a studio called Beanox, which mostly makes Spider-Man games now. It's not a big studio, but it is owned by Activision, the largest video game company in the world. I was one of the youngest developer there, and I definitely didn't have the same vision as the company. Uh, and it's it's okay because they they deal with uh, uh, Spider-Man and Spider-Man is like uh, it's an American franchise and it's uh, you have to deal with American writers from from Marvel because it, it makes sense it makes sense for Spider-Man universe to be uh, written by uh, someone from uh, Marvel but um, me my dream was to make uh, my own hype my own uh, uh, game my with my own universe so uh, when you think this way, when you think I'm building my own thing, then you, you ask yourself a lot of questions about uh, why we were making games at Beanox in English and with the American culture. And uh, I definitely at that point started to uh, realize that there were not a lot of games making, made in Canada. He's working on a mystery survival game called Kona set in northern Quebec during the 1970s. The 70s are a rough time in Quebec. It's the tail end of a quiet revolution, or... Révolution tranquille. That's Quebec separatism at its height. Terrorists kidnapped and then killed the province's deputy premier, and Canadian troops were sent in to stop them. To the ambience, and uh, we re definitely chose uh, that period because uh, there's a lot of historic uh, footage and uh, newspapers uh, in the archives that we can just look at and uh, implement somewhat, uh, some way into the game. And uh, going with a, a year that no, nothing has happened, like in 1978, for example, uh, will have been less interesting for us. And 
the the ninety seventies also opens up uh, a lot of thing with the music because the music changed at that time and uh, the the philosophy of people changed. Alexander is not the only one working on games based in Canada, though. On the other side of the country, in Vancouver Island, British Columbia, Raphael van Lierup has been building The Long Dark. The Long Dark is a first-person uh, post-disaster survival simulation set in northern Canada, and you play uh, William McKenzie, who's a bush pilot that's crashed in the northern wilderness as a result of a mysterious geomagnetic event that's kind of wiped out all technology. If you've read any of the press around this game, you'd know it's Canadian. Almost every preview has called The Long Dark a truly Canadian game. It certainly was always the intention to create a concept um, that didn't shy away from um, embracing Canadianness or my Canadianness, I should say. Raphael's brought up the context of his work in a presentation that he gave to the IGDA back in May, all about the notion of games as a potentially Canadian art. Um, certainly, one of the things that I, you know, discuss a lot in in that presentation. Uh, was just the notion of you know working in the the AAA games industry where you're you know you're working on multi-million dollar projects that are designed for uh, an international audience mainly because um, you know they need to recoup on the investment and so the tendency is to to you know remove any of the 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 small idiosyncrasies that kind of identify something as being a, a more of a, uh, a like a cultural work that reflects some somebody's identity. Um, so certainly for me, you know, having come out of that industry, uh, and when I founded Hinterland, um, in 2012, one of my goals was to, to, to not, you know, to, to not have to do that anymore, to be able to create something that felt more personal and, and didn't shy away from being a Canadian work. And so, um, you know, setting the game in Canada, having a Canadian protagonist, um, you know, having a studio based on Vancouver Island. Um, working with a lot of Canadians, um, again, not uh, shying away from the fact that it is, you know it is inspired by the Canadian wilderness. It is inspired by being Canadian. Um, yeah, I definitely can see why why journalists might think that that's um, you know a big part of our identity. I certainly think that you know when I think about myself and, and thinking about my cultural context and some of the games that I really enjoy that have come from other parts of the world, like. I often reference the Stalker series as being one of my favorite um, games, and and really, you know, you can tell when you play those games that they come from Eastern Europe, and and um, you know that there's a lot of design philosophy um, expressed through those games. It's very unique to that part of the world, and are not things that you tend to see in North America. And I, I find that that definitely lends a, a different flavor to the games and gives them makes them feel a little bit exotic and makes them interesting. Um, you know, I think we're probably not different enough superficially from the Americans for, for us to be able to have, you know, a cop show or, you know, a first person shooter that's distinctly Canadian. I think, again, going back to the long dark, I think one of the reasons why it works for us is because we've embraced, you know, our gameplay and our setting is, is really one that embraces something that everybody recognizes as being a fundamental part of Canadian existence and the Canadian identity, which is the idea of being in the wilderness and in the North. But more than Canada, what these games have in common is the wilderness. They're both set up in the northern half of the country, where the winters are harsh and the forests are dense. In time, others will follow them to cultivate the fertile land still farther north, where longer hours of sunlight in the summer make up for the shorter growing season. You know, for non-Canadians, I think the perception of Canada is that it is a, is a vast, you know, uninhabited wilderness. And I think 
that's actually true of, of you know, geographically speaking, that, you know, Canada is mostly wilderness. Raphael believes that that's part of the garrison mentality. That's been part of Canadian literature for a long time. And, and, and I think that's definitely part of what we're doing in the game as well is this whole playing with the whole psychology of, of you know, that sense of isolation and, and how does that change the way you see society and how does that change the way you, you frame your own kind of existence within it. The garrison mentality is a theory of Canadian literature that came out in the 70s. The gist is that Canada is empty. There's only 35 million of us, and the most of the population lives close to the border. So Canadians fear the wild and the unknown and feel impressed by outside forces. Playing with the whole psychology of, of you know, that sense of isolation and, and how does that change the way you see society and how does that change the way you, you frame your own kind of existence within it. Or, as Alexander puts it, sometimes living in Canada is just hard. It fits the north because people there, uh, and even in Quebec, and even in in Ontario, and even everywhere in Canada where there's winter, people have to uh, do something to survive. We don't we don't even uh, realize it, but uh, just buying a winter coat and uh, dressing yourself to go out at the minus forty degrees is something we call survival. You you do that because you don't want to die freezing. And it's part of the culture, even if in our story it's a bit more extreme because it's a video game. But uh, it's something you don't, I don't think you do when you live in California, for example. So This portrayal of Canada as a vast wilderness is fairly common. Sometimes it's just a shorthand for a big country with barely anyone living in it. But it's not the only portrayal you see in games. When I think about the examples of, you know, how Canada is being portrayed in games, I think about things like Mass Effect and Deus Ex Human Revolution, where we saw the urban Canadian existence. We saw, you know, Vancouver getting bombed by aliens in Mass Effect. And we saw, um, you know, the futuristic Montreal of, of Deus Ex Human Revolution. And, and so those, those felt like very urban Canadian experiences. For a lot of people listening, I bet this sounds real inside baseball. We're Canadians whining about how there aren't more of us in games. But having diversity of settings and perspectives is important, and it's not something only locals enjoy. Which, Raphael says, is one of the things he learns from Canadian authors, like Margaret Atwood. I think that, I mean, we live in a... uh... A very different world now than when Margaret Atwood was first publishing, you know, her her first books. Um, it's a completely interconnected world. We have, you know, if we bring it back to games specifically, I mean, we have there's no barriers anymore in terms of you know reaching an audience, a global audience. So I think um, to some degree, like that should allow us or enable us to uh, find an audience, even if our content is a little bit considered a little bit more niche because of subject matter or setting or whatever. And in our case, I don't. I've never worried about making The Long Dark more accessible to an international audience because we've already proven with our Kickstarter and along the way that there is a, an audience out there that that really does love the experience that we're offering. And, they, and, and for them, it's not at all an issue that it's set in Canada or that there's Canadian content. And I think it's interesting to note in our case that, you know, more than 80% of our players and our, our backers of our Kickstarter are, are American. So clearly they don't have an issue with the idea of it being in Canada. And they don't think of that as being, you know, something that takes away the, the quality or the perception of quality. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think what I took away from the whole comparison to Canadian literature was that, you know, 
it took many years for Canadian literature to get to a place where it was seen as being its own thing and having its own identity and being vibrant enough to be successful, not only within Canada, but outside of Canada, and that we were able to export a certain point of view. And I think maybe that's something that we're trying to do with the Lawn Dark as well, is trying to sort of export a point of view. Um, you know, and it's, it's challenging because it tends to have to be done through storytelling and content more than gameplay, because aside from examples like what I gave with Stalker, I mean, I don't know that there's a particularly Canadian approach to, you know, combat systems or, you know, resource models or whatever, whatever those things might be. So I think it does tend to come down to contents, you know, storytelling and, and art style and, and, and how we choose to present those things. Um, and for us, it just becomes, you know, the, the, it, we, we depend on some of the sort of the, the, the coarser ways of describing ourselves as Canadian, like picking, you know, things that, that people outside of Canada sort of attach or connect with as being part of the Canadian identity. Like I said, the idea of the vast wilderness or the idea that Will McKenzie is a bush pilot or some of these types of things, um, you know, are a bit, they become a bit of a, like a shorthand for us to be able to frame people in that, in that context. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you know the, the audience is international. It's it's there and it's big, and and that's you know part of I think the justification for uh, you know why I think we should be willing to take risks on these types of projects and put something out there that does have a bit of a stronger sense of its Canadian identity. Um, again, in our case, it doesn't seem to be working against us, but I but I acknowledge that a lot of that has to do with the concept that we have, um, the fact that you know people associate wilderness survival with northern Canada or west you know northwestern Canada and that's just part of their expectation so it works really well in our favor I think if we were trying to do another halo game or something like that I don't think being set in Canada would be particularly relevant they could apologize after they shoot <laughs> well yeah there's a stereotype for you different people playing games and uh, I think like in cinema and like in films uh, there are people looking for more diverse uh, experiences and they want to uh, travel in games. They want to see places all around the world while they play. And it's not limited to Canada, it's, it's also uh, Europe and uh, Africa and all those places. It's not, it's, I think it's, it's evolving this way and I think it's be, we, we, are, we are not there because uh, for a long time we wanted to create games for the American markets but now it's changing. Alexandra is a producer at Parable Games. Their game Kona was recently crowdfunded on Kickstarter, and we'll have a link to their site and trailer in our show notes. Raphael von Lirup is the co-founder of Hinterland and is working on The Long Dark. You can find out more at hinterlandgames.com. The Long Dark is now available on Steam Early Access. That's all for this week. I'm producer Armin Igbali. And I'm features editor Daniel Rosen. Built to Play was made with the help of... Natalia Bissette, Matt Grandstaff, David Eckleberry, Louis Brumbish, Alexandre Fizet, and Raphael Van Lerup. For extended versions of the interviews you just heard, check out our website, builttoplay.ca. We're available on Stitcher Radio and iTunes. Leave us a review so we know how we're doing and more people can find the show. 
We're usually on the air on Discover Ryerson at 1 p.m. with a new episode on Saturdays. And remember, this month on our site is all about virtual reality. Daniel already has a primer up on the site, and an audio version will be up by the time you listen to this episode. Plus, look forward to some virtual fiction. We update the website every Sunday. You can find us on Twitter at Built to Play. And me personally at Flarkon, that's F-L-R-K-C-O-N. And I'm at Daniel underscore Rosen, and really I think his full name is Benjamin Ghazi. Thank you so much for listening.